0: Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. (laughs)
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of NSL Unscripted. I'm Major Adam Wrights. I hold the space portfolio here at the Judge Advocate General Legal Center in school in the National Security Law Department. Here with Colonel Todd Pennington, the Staff Judge Advocate for the United States Space Command. He's also served as a Staff Judge Advocate at Whiteman Air Force Base, Space Operations Command, and Combined Force Space Component Command at Vandenberg Air Force Base, followed by Space Operations Command at Peterson Air Force Base. Colonel Pennington, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for your time and coming out here and visiting us.
0: Thanks Adam, looking forward to uh, talking today.
1: So I think based upon your current position as the Staff Judge Advocate of the United States Space Command, um, a little bit of understanding for our, our listeners of how the U.S. Space Command and U.S. Space Forces differ from each other and what your guys' responsibilities and roles are would, would be helpful to frame how we, what we're going to talk about today.
0: Sure. I get asked that question a lot everywhere I go. And, um, you know, you said the word space forces. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is a great umbrella term for everybody in U.S. Space Command, U.S. Space Force, and the smattering of space capabilities in the other services. But uh, the U.S. Space Force, it's the newest armed force established on December uh, 19th of uh, 2019, Sorry, December twentieth of twenty nineteen. Um, so it's it it's like the army, it's the navy, uh, it's a it's a military service. The space force uh, does acquisition for space capabilities. It trains guardians. It develops forces who can employ space systems. It runs exercises, all the things that arm that armed forces do, and then presents forces to combatant commands. One of the combatant commands that Space Force presents forces to is U.S. Space Command. We're not the only combatant command. There's forces presented to to other combatant commands as well. U.S. Space Command is one of the 11 United States combatant commands. Uh, U.S. Armed Forces are actually employed operationally through combatant commands. I know you've had uh, on the phone or, or on the podcast You've had Colonel Widmar uh, from yes, US, U.S. Central Command. Uh, there's U.S. Special Operations Command, U.S. Strategic Command, uh, operates School Strike and the Deterrence Mission, and U.S. Space Command. Um, U.S. Space Command is is kind of unique in the constellation of combatant commands in that we've got we have a role as a functional combatant command, like Transcom, like Strategic Command like uh, Special Operations Command, but we also have an assigned area of responsibility. It starts at 100 kilometers above the surface of the Earth and extends in all directions outward to infinity. And so um, if you know military history, there was a previous U.S. Space Command that existed prior to 9-11. There was a purely functional combatant command. It did not have an assigned area of responsibility, and that's been a change with the, new, uh, with the reestablishment of the command.
1: Sir, when you look at the U.S. Space Command and the United States Space Force and the direction that the U.S. is going uh, with its space mission, there's been a a variety of products that have been uh, produced to assist us as legal practitioners as well as just inform the United States public of what we're trying to accomplish and the things that we're trying to do in space as well as the international world, which assists them in knowing the direction that the U.S. sees space going in. And one of those products that I'm specifically referring to is this most recent product that came out here just a few days ago that really spells out the safe behaviors in space and the responsible behaviors in space that the U.S. has identified, and then these five tenets. Can you speak to what your command did in creating this as it says that the Space uh, Comm Commander is the one that, that responded to the Secretary of Defense with this memo and, and what your guys' role was in assisting your commander?
0: Sure. Yeah, the tenets of responsible behavior are a, are a really important framework for describing what it means to operate responsibly in space. It's not it's not law. Uh, it's um, it's not it doesn't purport to be a, a restatement of every principle of international or outer space law. There's really two documents that are related. There was a, a memorandum from the Secretary of Defense on our responsible behaviors in space for the, for the totality of the Department of Defense. Uh, this described things like, you know, we'll operate in, from, to, and through space with due regard to others and in a professional manner. You know, fairly, fairly generic, and that actually harkens back to a due regard obligation out of the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, but then there's concepts like limit the generation of long-lived debris. That doesn't really come from anywhere in uh, as a mandate of international outer space law. It just makes sense because it's not in anybody's interest to further contaminate the uh, to further contaminate Earth orbit with uh, with more debris than is already there, complicating space operations. Part of the responsibilities under the tenets of response of responsible behavior was for Space Command to propose specific behaviors to implement those. That was designed to get to a little bit more level of fidelity about what that looks like in practice. So, for example, the fourth tenet of responsible behavior is to maintain safe separation and safe trajectory. So as satellites orbit to ensure that their flight avoids conjunctions and certainly avoids collisions. So the tenet's fairly broad, and the behavior under that tenet is uh, we phrased as to ensure that space objects designed to conduct rendezvous or proximity operations have appropriate collision avoidance systems and follow trajectories that allow other space objects to maneuver in a safe manner. So getting into a little more specifics, because the way this comes up most commonly for us is when rendezvous and proximity operations occur. When we're conducting neighborhood watch operations or doing work uh, to inspect one of our satellites to assess damage. We ensure that we've got those collision avoidance systems. You know, there's a lot of math that goes into the trajectory calculations so that we can ensure our own usage is safe and deconflicted with other uses that we'll encounter in the course of conducting a maneuver.
1: And sir, this this product that you guys have created, I know is important for the U.S. and the international community to see where we stand, but also for legal practitioners and for those that are looking forward to working in space. And one of the things that comes up in my space law elective quite often is individuals that believe that they will not be part of space law because the U.S. Space Force has now um, been stood up. And so their belief that operations for their branch are kind of not going to occur, they're not going to get one of these billets, the U.S. Space itself uh, explores this joint operation type setup and allows for all branches to join in in the fight in space as well as, you know, peacetime operations. Can you speak to the setup that your office has to right now and the joint perspective that, that they have?
0: Sure. So the Spacecom legal team is fully joint. Um, we've got uh, legal officers and the legal support personnel from, uh, from the Navy, from the Air Force, from the Army. We've got a We've got four civilians on our staff. One of the civilians retired from the Coast Guard. So there's a lot of uh, perspectives that are represented uh, in the office. And and that becomes immensely valuable as we work with combatant commands and services that are focused on other domains. Uh, Because, you know, there are no guardian judge advocates. The Space Force does not have its own cadre of judge advocates. The Space Force receives its legal support from the Air Force and so um, we bring a little of that kind of space force sensibility from the Air Force side but how we integrate with all the other combatant commands is is vitally important and uh, it's interesting you know you, you mentioned folks may not think they're going to be working in space law but it's very easy working in national security law to find yourself working matters involving space operations. Space operations are not entirely in space. They can be They involve activities in the terrestrial domains, the link to different space systems, and then, of course, on orbit. But the vast majority of what happens in space is supporting activities on the ground and conducted by operators who are on the ground. And those operators are all based somewhere, not always in the United States. The location that you conduct space operations from often depends on the the eyes in the sky that you need. So, you know, different parts of the world have different views of the sky and Earth orbit. And so lots of international law issues can come up with those deployments, with the different host nation approvals that can can be involved in the agreements that support those operations. We work very closely with all of the other combatant commands and especially the geographic combatant commands on all of those agreements and arrangements. And a lot of times our legal reviews are in parallel. We have a legal review about the space activities, but there's enough international law equities and host nation equities, we'll defer to that combatant command to address those, and we just build our legal reviews in parallel.
1: I'd like to shift a little bit to your thoughts on working in the joint world and how you have managed to do so and do so so successfully as you filled a variety of joint assignments and, and helped the U.S. Air Force, at least in that regard, to, to meet the needs that the outside forces need from us.
0: Well, we're all in the joint world, right? I mean, if you're in the Department of Defense, you're in the joint world. Where you sit in the joint world may inform how you think about the particular duties you hold at any one time. But, you know, an an airman judge advocate at an Air Force base is as much a part of the joint force as a Navy judge advocate at U.S. Space Command. They're all serving different purposes in that joint world with the services basically organizing, training and equipping forces and the joint commands, particularly the combatant commands, employing those forces. In the joint world, which is to say in a joint assignment, I would say that that's a place where the different tensions that are inherent in the system can really get thrown into sharp relief. And they can be you can feel them a little more closely you know, there's there's tensions between that organized training equipment role and operational employment. For example, maintenance. You know, the services are, are responsible for maintenance. And combatant commands employing different capabilities, you know, that equipment, it will go down for maintenance at some point. You know, we'll either schedule it or it will schedule itself. And so we work with the services on that because, you know, we're trying to get the maximum capability out of things. There's always some urgent need and uh, the services you know, are always keenly aware of the need to do maintenance in order to support the readiness cycle. There's a tension there, and that kind of tension is, is by design. Our, our whole system of, uh, our whole constitutional system is built with these tensions there. There's, there's tensions between the, the three branches in our constitutional system, between state and federal and, and lots of other parts of, uh, of our government and, and other departments have the same dynamic. And there's goodness in it. And when we embrace it and recognize that it's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing, it's, it's how we, uh, you know, address hard questions and, uh, and really get some optimized decision-making in the long run. It can be, you know, there's a lot of good humor to be made about the <laughs> Pentagon bureaucracy, right? Yes sir. <laughs> yes, sir. So you don't have to be around that long before you, you catch some of the humor um, and I enjoy that humor because it's got a grain of truth in it, but it, it's also there for a reason. And, and some of that, that tension powers our decision-making, and that decision-making powers our capabilities, and it's it, what allows us to be a world leader.
1: Yes, sir. I'm also curious about your experience in national security law, really narrowly and broadly, You've served in a variety of positions that are very unique, especially looking at this deputy legal counsel to the Office of the Chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then your deputy staff judge advocate position at Pacific Air Forces, which was also an operational billet. And then all that operational time as a staff judge advocate, dealing with the variety of space issues that you dealt with, with the stand-up of the United States Space Force, and with the stand-up still of the United States uh, Space Command. Can you give us just some things to focus on, some areas that, that you can guide us in and and what practitioners that really want to do national security law can do and where they should really focus their time and energies.
0: You know, at the risk of of, uh, filing a concurring opinion with the title of the podcast, (laughs) you know, everything that judge advocates do and everything that attorneys in the Department of Defense do, it's all national security law. It's all happening for some reason to make our force a better force that can have more or less immediate connection to some particular operation, but it's all national security law. Otherwise it, it, it would not be part of the Department of Defense. You'd be doing it somewhere else. But certainly some jobs have have more of a of a ops law, international law kind of flavor. And some have you know more of a you know other disciplines focused on military justice or civil law and the like and there's there's goodness in all of it. Really, there's no one career path, uh, or I should say there's no one practice area that's going to prepare any legal advisor to support commanders in military operations, because we all, for example, start off as military justice practitioners, and there's not a lot in common with doing military operations and doing courtroom litigation, except that there really is. You're evaluating risk there's times when things go sideways and there has to be an investigation and the people they look to to support that investigation uh, includes the legal officers in the command because of the skills that we bring there on the on the civil law front you know that's where you get into appropriations law and fiscal law and anybody that thinks they're going to spend all of their days in a in a national security law uh, focused assignment or in an operations law focused assignment just deciding where the bombs go is in for a surprise. There's a lot of work on on fiscal law because so much of the way that we, you know, accomplish things and, and exercise influence is how we spend money. And as uh, as every uh, DoD attorney knows, there's lots of rules for how we how we spend money. Commanders really appreciate someone who's had a well-rounded career. If you're in some very operational-focused assignment, they want you to have that ops experience from somewhere in the past, but they also want you to just know the basics, the basics of being a lawyer, because they don't need you to be some kind of a law-flavored operator. They have operators, and those operators have all been trained on these different legal issues. They're not attorneys, but they They get it. I don't have to tell my clients about the outer space treaty. They know that. The leadership knows that, and the guys on the console know that because that's part of the training to become a space operator. It's that broader skill set in the law that we bring as attorneys. And so you get that ops experience in one assignment on a deployment perhaps, and then you go to somewhere else where it looks like a, a more conventional service assignment. But what are you doing there? You're building those new judge advocates who are coming in, you're training them on how the joint world works, on what the Goldwater-Nichols framework is, you're preparing them to deploy and go out and get their initial operations experiences, and then sending them out to their follow-on assignments more qualified for whatever comes next. That's a long way to say, I don't think it's good to stovepipe in any one discipline. I think there's goodness in being a very multi-purpose generalist. Commanders certainly appreciate that.
1: I think a good point to make is that when you are doing these different positions, because you're certainly, if you're in the military, you're not going to always be in an operational billet. That's not going to be the only thing you do. Or even if you're in an operational billet, you're still going to be tasked with other things that aren't operational law. And so, one way to be, stay engaged, if you're not necessarily working in operational law, is your scholarship, your ability to write. Commanders value that. Uh, skill set from their JAGs. I know you've done some scholarly writing, but do you have any advice for our listeners on what they can do to continue to write and learn and grow national security practice?
0: I'm a huge fan of, let me just say, the written word period. You know, not just scholarly writing for purposes of legal writing for our conversation. There's just power in writing stuff down. If you're trying to communicate an idea, committing it to writing just pours gas on that fire in so many ways. One, it forces you to think through the hard questions, the stuff that's very easy to hand-wave in a briefing. PowerPoint is a great briefing aid, but it's easy to, you know, a lot of briefings can be what they call PowerPoint deep. You ask a few questions, and it's very obvious that there's not a very deep understanding of whatever it is that we're talking about. Writing it out in long form just has a, a wonderful forcing function like that. For scholarly writing in particular, it's a way to deep dive on some topic and really become a deep expert. And it's amazing how often these things tie around. Whatever topic you pick tends to have dividends for these other practice areas that you encounter, both in the particulars of that legal issue, but even more importantly, in the skill that, you've, that you'll that you further hone for research and refining an idea and communicating concise ideas to really distill complicated matters to something that can make it understandable to somebody unfamiliar. I do have a couple of cautions about, or at least I offer judge advocates I work with, a couple of cautions about scholarly writing. One is... To be very mindful about security. And obviously, if you've worked in a secure environment, you tend to know what to protect and you know who to go to for a security review. What you want to watch out for is if you have not worked in that secure environment and if you're writing about a topic where you may not have a deep understanding of what to protect. I have seen a trend where some folks can talk about, with a lot of enthusiasm, a different mission area. Different capabilities and the, and the legal issues that they raise. I'll just say you really ought to be consulting with someone who is a deep expert in that field if if you aren't sure before you send it in for a security review and certainly and certainly do that security review. And then second, this is less about scholarly writing, more about uh, more about talk. There's been a trend in recent years that I've seen. I think the pandemic when we were on lockdown really magnified this. There are a lot of conference organizers who aren't really professional associations. They're just conference organizers. Some of them put out some pretty good product, but my experience has been they'll kind of take whoever seems to have an interesting resume. And if you come from a military organization, you automatically have an interesting resume. And they're willing to give you a pretty big microphone pretty quickly. That's great. And once you say those words into that microphone, they'll exist forever. And so really protect your reputation by ensuring that if you're going to stand up and opine as an expert, that you really bring in that expertise. Because I guess it's a long way of saying enthusiasm does not equal capability. But we want to have both. And one is a path to the other. But just a caution to not let your enthusiasm for a particular topic get you too far ahead of the headline. Now, if you're doing the security reviews, of your scholarly writing, if you're working with mentors and experts who'd be happy to, you know, I get asked to look at stuff all the time, articles being considered for publication, stuff that has some tie to mission areas that I've worked in in the past. I'm always happy to look at those. And every judge advocate leader I know is equally willing to do so, recognizing the importance of it.
1: So, sir, this past week, you had the U.S. Space Com Legal Conference. We had a, a lot of great speakers there. And, and some of the topics that they focused on were... Uh, cooperation in space, but as well as the strategic competition that's occurring here with China. So I want to shift our our topic here from the NSL practice and writing and scholarship and things of that nature back to space. And specifically because I teach the elective on China law and strategy, I, if you could, could you give us an appro- the, the differences in the approaches that China takes versus the United States? Sure. It's
0: interesting you have a section on China law. Does yeah. China have law in any kind of a meaningful sense of the word the way that we think about the law as U.S. attorneys?
1: Good point, sir. So really, yeah, I mean, law fair, I guess, is, the, is a fair way to say it, or their interpretation of international law that benefits themselves. But yeah, so we, we discuss that quite uh, broadly and their viewpoints as they go forward and the things that they do. But yes, we dif- disagree quite, quite a bit on our interpretations of international law. Good point.
0: Yeah, I think that those differences that you see in lots of other aspects of PRC activities are the same in space. We like to say that we have the rule of law, and I think that's true. You know, I really believe that, and I can prove it by pointing to China, which has what I would call rule by law. Companies can't really have certainty, and they don't have predictability about what they can do legally. What might they do that would prompt the government, which is to say the Chinese Communist Party, to come in and change the ownership structures of their company for a reason that may be articulated as arising from law, but it's a law that maybe you never heard about before or was never applied that way or something that everybody in China breaks. And so everybody's equally complicit with making then everybody subject to the essentially arbitrary enforcement actions of the uh, of the party. And I say enforcement, seizure, control, whatever, you know, suits their, uh, their purposes uh, at the moment. And on the international law front, you mentioned the word lawfare, and I think that's fair. I mean, China has their three warfares, one of which is legal warfare, which is to, to do things that challenge legal frameworks that they don't like, that they feel constrained by, and to attempt to articulate things in some legal way But it's not really law. For example, the recent uh, high-altitude balloon, there was a lot of um, rumblings, you know, from China about, you know, this is not consistent with state practice in near space. What do you mean near space? There is no such thing as near space. There's, There's airspace, which is either sovereign national airspace, or it's international airspace that anybody's allowed to be, or it's outer space. There's no legally cognizable zone between airspace and outer space. Now they, they didn't come out and say, "Well, we think there's a middle band called near space." That's not how they approach this. They just say like, "Well, that's not how we do it in near space." As if it's a thing, right? <laughs> like the nine-dash line in the South China Sea. You know, they'll talk about the nine-dash line as if it's a thing. It was mm-hmm. never brought up at the UNCLOS negotiation proceedings that they participated in. But yep. all of a sudden when they, you know, start building islands in that waterway, it's like, well, all of this is ours. There's the nine-dash line. It's not a thing because you just say it, you know, China. It's not how this works, and that's just it. That's that's not how this works. There, there's a level of you know willingness to, to flout international laws and international norms when it's uh, when it's convenient. In space, in particular, you know, certainly China did a very destructive uh, direct ascent ASAT test that produced tons of debris that remains on orbit in the low Earth orbit regime. That doesn't violate the Black Letter of the Outer Space Treaty, right? There's no, there's no treaty mandate against conducting that kind of test, but it's certainly irresponsible. You know, we we know that when you do those tests, it creates that debris, it contaminates the domain for everybody, but nevertheless, they're willing to to do it. More recently, there have been a handful of uh, uncontrolled reentries of large rocket bodies. U.S. practice is to do uh, controlled reentries that enter at a known point or like SpaceX just land them on a land them on a lander and use them again, or uh, otherwise assure that basically large objects don't come down to Earth from space in an uncontrolled manner. Uh, and that's happened a few times, and so far, knock on wood, nobody nobody's been hit. Uh, but certainly uh, debris is washed up on shore it landed pretty close to populated islands, mm-hmm. uh, waters that are fished in. And so there's certainly a lot of risk with that uh, rather cavalier behavior towards responsible
1: space operations. Well, sir, we really appreciate you coming out and, and joining us and give, doing this podcast, knowing that you've got a very busy schedule ahead of you, not just here at the school, but as well as back home at the U.S. Space Command, and that there's always people needing your advice and and needing you to assist them in the things that they're doing. So, again, sir, Thank you very much for taking the time and helping us out with this podcast and giving uh, our listeners an opportunity to kind of take a moment and reflect on space and where it's headed and the things that uh, the command is doing. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts, sir?
0: Adam, this has been fun. I really appreciate the chance to uh, address the podcast. For those who are are interested in space, I think the time is coming when space is not going to be quite so commonly used as an adjective. You know, we talk about the space economy and the space industry, and someone runs a space business. I practice space law. Increasingly, it's just law, and it's just business, and it's just the economy. Um, So I think the days of space as an adjective are going away, and we're all space lawyers now. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's legal center and school. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.